Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Sirkan. Hello, Bernard. How are you doing? I am well, and you are now in Japan, right? Yes, that's correct. I am talking to a highly recurring guest by the name of Sirkan Toto. Actually, it's Dr. Sirkan Toto, CEO of Kantan Games. And he's probably the number one person that I will ever need to ask if I need to learn anything about gaming in Japan. So Sakan, what have you been up to lately with the gaming industry? Yes, so there's been a couple of news, especially on the in the mobile sector of the gaming industry in Japan, and mostly most of them have to do something with uh, Nintendo entering the mobile games market as basically the last big video game maker on the planet to do so. And also, there are a couple of little trends that you actually been observing, which is the reason why I wanted to get you here because you have actually wrote a little bit about recently. There's a major trend that's happening subtly Japan's mobile game industry, and that's consolidation. Maybe <sighs> just to help about my audience to understand how is Japan's mobile gaming industry compared to the rest of the world? First of all, it's it's the biggest in the world in, in terms of value. According to Deutsche Bank, a mobile games market worldwide is something like 25 billion US dollars and Japan commands 7 billion of that. So in terms of revenue, in terms of the money that people actually spend to buy in-game items, for example, the Japanese market is the biggest. It's, it's bigger than the US or it's bigger than China or Korea, etc., etc. It's, I would say, for that reason, it's also probably the most most competitive you know in the world number one reason for that being the highly crowded supply side so you basically have roughly 500 600 serious game companies that are going after the same market and that's the Japanese one. And so this is another uh, you know, distinction between you know, the Japanese games market, mobile games market and the rest of the world. And that is that the mobile games market here in Japan is very, very domestic. I would say that you know, the one closest to the Japanese one in that respect is the Chinese one. Because, uh, you know, both both of these markets are so big that most developers just focus on their local market. So it's very big, very crowded, very competitive, but it's the most mature because it's also the oldest uh, mobile games market on the planet. In terms of also business models and monetization models, it's a pretty advanced and sophisticated market as well for Japan, right? Yes. So basically, as uh, one example, if you look at the ARPPU, the average revenue per paying user, not per user, but per paying user on the Japanese market for mobile games, so industry-wide, on average, you know, there are various sources for that, but you know, all the sources point uh, to a certain corridor, and that corridor, certain range, and that range is $55, $60, something along those lines. And that's five, six, seven times higher than most mature markets that we, had, uh, that we have in the world. So helping my audience a bit, I, I took a look at some interesting data you have compiled in the Casual Connect 2015 you stated mm-hmm. that there's about 500 to 700 mobile game providers, 40 mm-hmm. listed companies in the mobile gaming space, 20 game platforms, and three right. major companies, DNA, GREE, and LINE. I would want to pick your brain a bit. Who are actually the major players in Japan's mobile gaming market? Yeah, you mentioned three big game companies. These three game companies, you know, I highlighted a little bit because they are platform companies. Basically, I mean, if you look at mobile games or if you look at the content space in more general terms, there are basically two types of companies, roughly speaking. One are uh, content providers and the other are uh, platform providers. The DNA, Gree, and Line, perhaps Line is, you know, for, for everybody who's listening is, is, uh, and who's not familiar with mobile games is probably the best uh, example. So Line, 
is a platform provider in mobile games, primarily, uh, you know, because they have a, a messaging app uh, where they give third-party developers a chance uh, to distribute games through to reach end users. And DNA and Gree, back in the day in 2006, 2007, here on the Japanese market, they also established uh, g- gaming platforms that eventually reached uh, tens of millions of people. Uh, whereas the other, like uh, you mentioned, 500 to 600 mobile game developers, uh, rough figures, depends on the source that, who, you, who you're asking. So most of them are pure content providers. That doesn't mean that they use, uh, you know, these three uh, uh, platform providers, but uh, they are not uh, operating platforms themselves. I read in your article that there are some recent events in 2015 and 2016, which basically led you to conjecture that the trend is leading towards consolidation. What are they? Yes, companies going together, the mobile game development operations and uh, marketing costs here in Japan for in, in terms of for the mobile games market are skyrocketing or they're going up really, really quickly. You have a type of consolidation where two companies are, uh, you know, not merging yet, not becoming one, but, you know, they are co- cooperating in certain fields, for example, co-developing or co-publishing, you know, the same game in order to cut costs. Companies are just uh, being pushed out of the market. They just have to close their doors or they have to close mobile games that they've been operating because mobile games in contrast to console games are services. They are services that never end and so they have to be operated. There has to be customer support for example, you know, they have to be updated etc etc. So even after the initial version of, of a mobile games out on the market, there's a, a you know cost pressure on the, by the developer in terms also of personnel resources etc etc to keep the game afloat and to keep it uh, you know interesting for the existing users and maybe in order to acquire new users you have to operate the game. And, you know, more and more companies are don't hesitate uh, so much anymore here on the Japanese market to just simply shut down these uh, games and services. Will this consolidation continue to happen from what you're observing now? Yes, I mean, no doubt. I mean, especially when it comes to things like uh, closing uh, closing games and services. It might sound very trivial. You just uh, close a game. So what? what's the problem, right? I mean, there are so many games out there. But for a given developer nowadays, especially on the Japanese market, when you close a game, that means that you basically put an end to a multi-million dollar project. Closing a game, closing a service like that nowadays is uh, means that you basically invested millions and millions of US dollars into a game that simply didn't work on the marketplace. I think that if you look at, you know, we have uh, February 2016, and if you look at just at this month, the list of companies that have, you know, sh- uh, shut down these services, just very, very long. There are like smaller companies, but there are also really, really big companies that have you know, pushed out a triple A mobile games in the last uh, six months. But again, they don't hesitate so much anymore to just shutter these uh, these services nowadays. I was looking at the article that you wrote, you talk about like, for example, there is a Japanese web behemoth called GMO, they closed down five smartphone game subsidiaries at the same time. And then you have c- cases like smart game makers like K-Lab, Broccoli, they announced a business alliance yeah. where they cons- they do apps together. And then there is a Singapore-based mobile game developer, Nubi, closed all operations. I mean, then you have yeah. Capcom, which is known for Street Fighter, say you yeah. roll up Japan mobile gaming services into one and, and so forth and so forth. My question would be, what are the kind of indicators that you will be watching that will show that these consolidations will continue to move forward or maybe there will be a change in trend that might also happen at the same time. Yeah, I think that apart from the, you know shutting down uh, services, I think that it's probably going to be uh, the case that uh, you know a lot of the smaller and the mid-sized developers are probably going to have to close shop over the next uh, two to three to five years here on on the Japanese market. The the uh, number one reason for that is that, as I mentioned earlier, the the costs for developing games, operating them, and marketing uh, games 
properly, especially in mature markets like here on the, in the Japanese one, it, it's not you, you cannot do that anymore as a very small company to try to compete with the big ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's going to get a really, really difficult also for new startups and for new entrepreneurs to, uh, to get into the uh, mobile game space. Do you foresee a situation where the game platform starts to consolidate as well? Yes, so that already happened. If you look at uh, DNA and Grieb, we, you know, we briefly talked about these two companies. So five years ago, in 2012, if you look at the share price of these companies, these are all listed companies, right? Ex except for Line, which is you know, uh, uh, still rumored to go public. But uh, DNA and Grieb are public companies. If you look at just the stock price, so uh, these two uh, companies basically peaked in 2012. The problem for DNA and Gree was that they provided this platform back in the feature phone days here on the Japanese market, and they were duopolists in the feature phone gaming market in Japan, which was already a multi-billion dollar market back then. Uh, but then the smartphone revolution, and with that, iOS and Android, you know, Apple and Google with their respective platforms came into the Japanese market and disrupted the platform business model of DNA and Gree. So nowadays, uh, DNA and Gree still have the platform business, but it's more of a legacy business, right? So they still, it's a cash cow for them, basically. Uh, they don't really invest so much in it anymore, but it's still high, a highly profitable business just by itself. But that market is, uh, is shrinking and shrinking because even, even here on the Japanese market with this whole feature phone like history and with millions of people uh, playing games on feature phones and on the browser, uh, people are moving more and more by the week, basically, to the big uh, top two platforms, Apple and Google, and uh, to the native app. So the consolidation on the platform in Japan has already happened. So DNA went to Nintendo to go into the smartphone mobile gaming. But what about Gree? Have they done anything in the smartphone space as well? Uh, Gree is basically in a very uh, difficult position. It's uh, so, so both companies are like still profitable, right? So, you know, they have uh, still, if you just look at the numbers, it's, uh, it's still uh, it's still okay, right? I mean, they're still making money. But uh, when you compare it, especially to 2012, 2011, both companies are just, I would say, almost shadows of themselves. They're not growing anymore. Uh, you know, the profits are going down, the sales are going down, etc., etc. And that's the situation where Gree is in. Gree today, I would say, is if you if you ignore you know uh, this kind of like platform business that is just, as I mentioned earlier, uh, more of a legacy business. They are basically now a content provider, just like about everybody else here on the Japanese market. Uh, because they are using iOS and Android just like everybody else is. They're developing games. Uh, most of the new games are native applications, so they, they have to compete with every other uh, native app vendor here on the Japanese market. So they don't have anything like Nintendo has. So for Nintendo, if you want to be cynical, you can say that you know DNA would have had uh, the same fate as Gree is seeing right now if it wasn't for, for Nintendo, which basically came as a white knight and saved DNA from that kind of like spiral that they were in of numbers and financials that were going down and gave them a whole new position on, on the, on the, uh, here in the gaming space. So I would say that you probably cannot even compare DNA and Gree anymore uh, because of that, that uh, Nintendo deal that uh, DNA has inked uh, last year. Um, so one of the interesting data points is that there are a lot of mobile gaming companies in Japan actually going public. There are mobile gaming companies such as MyNet also going public yes. in the coming months. Will the trend of consolidation actually impact their stock price when they go public? they may have suffered some uh, stock price drop as well, given that uh, so I many think, things I think happened. It, yeah, so, so I think it already happened. Minet is already public at, at the time that we speak right now. Uh, they're just the last big example of a game company that went public. Uh, the market caps, when when these companies are, are reaching this, the stock market or are reaching you know, the maturity they think they they have to get listed, it has already gone down. Minet was okay, I think. There, there are some like on the horizon where I would say the market cap that they have put out as, as, as a goal would have been much, much higher 
higher uh, two or three years ago. Uh, I think that has happened already. So since we last talked, whatever happened to the Nintendo DNA deal? Yes, the biggest news is that just yesterday on February 17th, Nintendo has opened pre-registration for the first application that they are preparing right now and uh, together with DNA, and that's Miitomo. Uh, M-I-I-T-O-M-O, which is a communications app that Nintendo is uh, planning to actually push out next month during March, but you can pre-register already. So pre-registration is a very popular user acquisition tool here on the Japanese market for mobile games where you know users are giving away their uh, email and they get notified when the game is actually out on the App Store or, or, on, or on Google Play and uh, they get a reward, you know, in-game rewards, points, for example, or c- virtual currency inside the game uh, for having uh, you know completed that action, and so, Nintendo has opened pre-registrations yesterday, and also uh, you know extended uh, the so-called My Nintendo platform. You know we are back to platforms again. Uh, the so-called uh, My Nintendo platform to uh, more countries outside Japan. So in, uh, in Japan, you were able to you know sign up for the My Nintendo platform in 2015 already, but then uh, they now expanded it to more countries, and that also happened yesterday. So has Nintendo published any mobile games from their content IP yet? Not yet. So they have said that uh, the number two app and the number three app. You know they are planning to push out a total of five apps together with DNA. There, there's probably going to go, uh, be more apps outside that Nintendo DNA deal. But DNA is not the exclusive partner, so that Nintendo. So that means essentially Nintendo can do whatever they want. Uh, but uh, you know, for for the Nintendo DNA deal, there's going to be four more, and they said until March 2017, which is the end of the fiscal year for Nintendo. And they, the number two and the number three game uh, apps will actually be games. And they said for the number two game that the number two game will use one of Nintendo's iconic IPs. So the Niantic Labs, which is invested by Google, Nintendo, and Pokemon Company, which is known for the Pokemon mm-hmm. Go, had now started to have a presence in Japan. And I think what their app is pretty interesting because it uses mobile and it actually could be extended into the augmented and virtual reality gaming space. So what would their yeah. impact be in the Japanese market then? Uh, yes, so Niantic Labs, that's the name of the company uh, that is uh, providing, the, it's basically a Google spin-off. Uh, so it's one of these uh, many, many companies that's coming out of Google. Uh, they were actually a games company that was set up by Google, and they created this GPS-based game called Ingress, where you, you know, as a user, you travel around in the real world, or you walk around in the uh, real world, or you, you, know, you take a bus somewhere, and then you open up the, the, the application, and the application via GPS knows where you are, and uh, the gameplay is based on that. So you go to a landmark, like a museum, for example, and then uh, you know the game gives you uh, gives you an action to do. So you're an agent in that game, or you know you're a rebel. So there are two factions in the game: rebels and agents. And then you know you have to decide at the at the start of the game which faction you, you want to belong to. And then the, you know the, you can you know, perform certain actions inside the game based on where you are in the real world. Google uh, and Nintendo and the Pokemon company invested in that company. Uh, because they want to use that kind of framework, that kind of GPS framework for a Pokemon game. And uh, that game is Pokemon Go, and it will probably be released in uh, 2016, and it will basically um, combine this GPS mechanic that I just mentioned, you know, landmark-based gaming with augmented reality. So you will hold up your smartphone, and through the camera, you will see, um, you know, Pokemon uh, uh, superimposed um, uh, over the real world. Should I be saying that mobile gaming is now going to be per se, given that Oculus Rift and HTC Sony with all these new VR sets that are coming in in this year because a lot of people have been hyping up the virtual reality gaming space? 
Uh, yeah, so I think that you know mobile will uh, will uh, will continue to uh, to be bigger. So mobile is uh, is a very big market already. It's going to be, I think, uh, much much bigger in the future. You know, with uh, more and more Americans, more and more Chinese. At some point, maybe also Indians, and you know, uh, some Southeast Southeast Asian market is going bigger by value. I think that you know that train is is unstoppable. For me personally, I think that VR is, of course, in gaming will be a huge market because uh, VR is just so uh, so um, you know well suited for uh, for games. I personally think, though, that uh, you know it, it will take time for VR in gaming. I'm not talking about like things like enterprise uh, applications or like uh, adult entertainment, you know, where a lot of people are bullish or like other things. But in gaming, I think it will take time because you know I think that for gaming, uh, VR at this point in time is uh, simply too uh, too expensive in order to uh, make it to the mainstream. You basically need a Candy Crush game for a VR app to go. Viral. Uh, yes, so that's a good point, right? So that a killer application, I mean, I personally don't see it uh, for the mass market. You know, there are some good games uh, are already out for the Oculus, for example, that that you can, you know, that you can play with the developers kit that they have for the PlayStation, you know, VR headset. There are also some like exciting sounding games in the pipeline. You know, it's too early, right? You, you cannot have a killer application for, um, you know, a platform that really hasn't officially launched yet. I personally think that the number one uh, problem, the by far the biggest problem, though, is the price, right? So the Oculus has is already priced; it's dated and priced at six hundred dollars. I think that's not the problem. Even the problem is that you need a one thousand dollar desktop PC that's Windows, you know, doesn't uh, Linux or you know Mac doesn't uh, uh, doesn't work at all, and ninety nine percent or like even more, I think, uh, than that uh, uh, of, of laptops don't work. So it has essentially it has to be a desktop PC. To power uh, that you, ha- you need to have uh, to power that uh, the Oculus, I think that you know hardcore PC gamers already have that th- uh, have such a beast at home. I don't see a mass market that uh, you know spends one thousand six hundred US dollars ju- just to spe- uh, just to play uh, VR games. I want to pick your brain because you have talked a lot about cracking into the Japanese market. I know every other foreign gaming company will come to you when they want to enter into the the Japanese market. So given that mm-hmm. Japan is the largest mobile gaming market in the world, what are actually the different ways for foreign gaming companies to enter Japan? Um, yes, so, so there's a couple of ways that uh, they can do that. I mean, by the way, so I think that, uh, you know, uh, by default, uh, if there's actually like a mobile game developer from outside Japan that's looking at the Japanese market by default, and this may be something I shouldn't, I shouldn't say because uh, I'm a consultant in this space, by default, I would say don't come here because the market, of course, is very lucrative. I completely understand, you know, the high interest of uh, a lot of mobile game developers in the space here, here in Japan because, you know, uh, there's a lot of money, uh, very simply put, in the market. A lot of high spending users, just a lot of you know value floating around in the in this space. Even on a daily basis, you can you can say if you are really really like unbelievably uh, convinced that you have a chance on the Japanese market, I think that probably uh, the way to go, especially in the first phase, is uh, through a partnership with a local company, and that can be uh, you know another game. Another game developer that can be a platform provider like Line, for example, or maybe a future Nintendo platform that's open to third-party developers, or a publishing partner, right, where you d- develop the game, even you know take over operations like customer support, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you let a Japanese partner publish the game, or if you have a marketing partner, right? So uh, because if you just put your game or your application here on the Japanese market, it doesn't matter. It ha- can be the best game on the entire planet on mobile. 
uh, that will be probably 99.999999% of all cases will not be enough. So you have to do active market, uh, active user acquisition, and that means uh, marketing costs, right? So if you have a marketing uh, partner, that I would say that's inevitable. Otherwise, there's also some cases where some companies are uh, uh, just try it uh, by themselves. So they approach uh, marketing agencies or user acquisition agencies here on the Japanese market. They buy 30,000, 40,000, 20,000, whatever the number is of, of users to test, to test out the waters, to test out, you know, how the key performance indicators are looking uh, for the games before, before then looking at other uh, possibilities like partnerships. What I always tell people is if you are, especially smaller developers, uh, indie developers, you know, with five people, six people, three people, four people, something like that, or even mid-sized developers, I always tell them, you know, to, uh, to buy a qualified uh, group of uh, Japanese users first. Um, you can do that uh, through Facebook, through Twitter, through Google's, you know, uh, AdSuit, completely, you know, on your own as a developer, uh, you know, if you're a marketer, you can use, um, you know, the English uh, interfaces of these uh, user acquisition channels uh, from your own office in, you know, in Singapore or in the US, where, wherever it is. Just buy, try to buy like 5,000, 2,000, 4,000 uh, Japanese users through these channels that are also open to you outside Japan and see how it goes. See if they like your game, if they spend money in the game before thinking about other things. That's, that's by far the best option, I would say. So how are the foreign gaming companies performed so far in Japan then? Uh, not not so well overall. It's really really difficult, you know, to quantify that. If you look at uh, the top, uh, I just did that, uh, you know, yesterday for uh, for a presentation that I was preparing. So if you look at the top thirty grossing apps on iOS at the moment, for example, three or four of them are from outside Japan. Wow. So in other words, ninety percent is local content, and I would say that at this point, when I looked at it yesterday, uh, that was already a high number. Uh, these games are a Game of War, Clash of Clans, for example. If you look at uh, Game of War, it's operated by uh, you know uh, an American company called. Machine Zone, I think the latest valuation uh, over the, over in the U.S. They're, they're they're on the West Coast, something like four billion dollars or something like that. Clash of Clans is operated by Supercell, and Supercell is fifty one percent owned by uh, SoftBank. Mm. And I don't think I have to uh, you know explain to your uh, listeners who SoftBank is. Does that mean that in order for you to actually even get a chance to breathe in Japan, you have to be actually a very successful game outside? For example, I would look at something like Angry Birds, Candy Crush, and the games that are produced by Supercell, Clash of Clans. Yes, so if, if you have a crap game, you have absolutely no chance. You know, whatever your marketing budget is, whatever you think you can do on the on the marketing and the promotion side, you have no chance because very very simple reason for that. The, the Japanese mobile game users are the by far the most demanding people uh, that you can imagine. So if you, if you have a bad game, you have no chance. So the game has to be good, it has to be unique, it has to have high production value, etc., etc. That's just one exception, though. You know, not everybody is a supercell. Not everybody is a machine zone. You know, not everybody is king, which, you know, for, uh, providing Candy Crush. If you say, you know, look, um, you know, some of these companies say, look, second, like, we are not going after the top 30. We are not going after the top 10. For us, because the Japanese market is so lucrative, if we have a top 150 game, for example, we can still do, do a lot of money in Japan, like, or especially if you talk about a 12-month period, about a year that, uh, um, uh, when you can actually chart in that position on the Japanese market. We don't need to, hundreds of thousands of users. We don't need TV commercials, for example. 
which all of the companies that uh, that I just mentioned uh, have been doing uh, here here in Japan as a mass uh, mass user acquisition tool. For that, if if that's your goal, if you're a mid-sized developer, a smaller developer, then you can do uh, you can do other things. Then you can have you know a small marketing budget, uh, maybe a, a few tens of thousands of dollars, and then you can buy. Uh, you know, a certain ad inventory and, you know, you can do so- certain things on Facebook, uh, maybe a tie-up uh, with another game publisher here, etc., etc., then it's okay. But if you really want to break into the into the uh, absolute top 10, top 20 here on the Japanese market, uh, you have to be one of the big fish. As a small company, I would say you basically have no chance. Even if you're a Japanese company, of the top 30 companies, I think that uh, the ones that are not listed are the foreign ones. Wow. That's you know Machine Zone and uh, Supercell at the moment. I think that the other 28 or 27 apps that are in the top 30 grossing on iOS at the moment, as we speak right now, they are all coming from listed uh, from listed local game developers. Before I close the conversation today, I want because I know you have a PhD in economics. So recently, Japan is going to have negative interest rates. <laughs> so what does yeah. that mean? for the rest of the world coming into Japan. Yeah, so I think that, you know, it depends on how long that economic policy will be um, actually execute that kind of uh, economic uh, policy. I personally think that the decision is more like of a signal than a long-term economic policy. That's just my, uh, just my personal speculation. I think that it just shows that Japan can still surprise people. For gaming, I think for the gaming industry, I think uh, it doesn't really have an impact, but uh, you're right. So for the overall I- economy, of course, it it already did have an impact. We ju- just look at the stock prices of of the banks, for example. I mean, totally tanked, right? In the last in the last couple of days here uh, in in Japan's uh, um, you know stock exchange. I personally think that this is not uh, not something that they uh, that they can uphold for eternity. Ah, so it's going to be a temporary measure to just to force so. the banks to get people to borrow money or to invest, basically. It's not to yes, borrow, it's I, actually I, to I invest. Pers- I personally think so. I personally think so, yeah. Okay, so I can, as per always, I have to find you. Where do my audience find you? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so the uh, the easiest uh, way is probably uh, through my uh, website, uh, serkantoto.com. Or on Twitter, where my ID is also Serkan Toto. Or of course, you know you can, you know you can add me on LinkedIn as well. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia A N A L Y S E on Twitter. You can find us on Stitcher, Acast, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And of course. Uh, we would like to hear your feedback. So once again, Serkan, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I want to talk to you again at some point. Sure. Thank you for having me.